Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, recommencement of hostilities. As the truce between Israel and Hamas shatters, the bombs begin to fall again in Gaza. A UNICEF spokesperson on the ground describes the scene around him. Resting her cases, we remember Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve as a Supreme Court justice in the U.S., and her former clerk, Gretchen Rubin, shares the justice's secret to happiness. Air quotes. Defense Minister Bill Blair defends the decision to single-source a $10 billion deal for surveillance planes, telling us that speed and certainty trumped an open competition. All other solar systems eclipsed. Researchers find what they're calling the perfect solar system that has barely changed since it formed billions of years ago, making it an astronomer's dream. It's like mucus to our ears. A tiny underwater creature uses a trail of surprisingly beautiful blue snot to glow in the dark and attract glowing reviews from potential mates. And it's as easy as ABC-esta. Researchers discover the surprising slumber habits of chin-strap penguins who don't so much sleep as indulge in micro-naps thousands of times a day. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that's best in small doses. Once again today, Israeli strikes thundered in Gaza. After seven days, the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas expired this morning. The Hamas-run health ministry says over 150 people have been killed in Gaza since then, and hundreds more injured. James Elder is a UNICEF spokesperson. We spoke to him last week when the pause in fighting began, and he was finally able to enter Gaza. We reached him in southern Gaza again earlier today. And a warning, this interview contains disturbing details. James, how often have you been hearing the sounds of strikes since this morning? Consistently. I can hear jets over right now. I was under a table five minutes ago. Consistently. Uh, from from 30 seconds past the end of the ceasefire till 12, 12 hours later to you and I speaking now. I understand that you were able to visit the, the Nasser Hospital in Han Yunus uh, in the south of the Gaza Strip this morning. How close was the bombing to the hospital? 50 metres, 100 metres, I guess, the first one I saw, and then a much larger one. I, I couldn't tell. It was behind the row of buildings, but maybe the, maybe the same. Far too close, certainly far too close for those people in taking shelter in the hospital. Many children with, with horrendous wounds of war who you know simply can't be moved. Uh, and, and everyone there, every single person having already been through this, having moved under bombardment. So, so you, saw, you saw kind of that moment where children had a sense of their childhood returning, you saw it turn back again to fear coming coming back into their faces, their looks. What is the situation in the hospitals now? I mean, they, they were able to get something, I hope, through the, the course of the pause in the fighting? Yeah, the situation they are just so utterly overawed. I mean, a hospital I visited in the north is a referral hospital. Hospital now, it's the, the primary hospital for for wounds of war. Um, it's, it's blood all over the floor, bandaging. I saw a, a man or a young man bleed to death with his mum there, and this was during during a ceasefire. They're war zones, that same hospital. The, there's a church in the hospital grounds. It's an emergency ward. NASA Hospital now is the biggest functioning. It's a 200% capacity of patients. There's hundreds, thousands, I'm not sure, people in corridors, outside ICU, outside X-ray, absolutely everywhere. But you're right, Peter, the, this was a big week for aid, but you have to be very clear, seven days of aid after restrictions 
on an immense scale for seven weeks, this was only ever going to be a very, very minor start. And now, of course, it's been you know abruptly halted as as the attacks have restarted. Can you give us a sense, though, of what was able to get in? I know they needed fuel. We know they needed medical supplies and medicine. Uh, were, were they able to get at least some of that uh, over the course of the last seven days? Yes, absolutely. I mean, twice I was on convoys, UNICEF and other UN agencies to the north, and they were taking medical supplies. That's emergency medical kits. It's kits for midwives. A lot of women giving still birth, giving birth rather, giving birth and husbands not there, displaced, giving birth in a war zone. It's a it's a terrible, terrible thing to see. The look on those women of what would have been, I imagine, you know, three, four months ago, a moment ever, the whole family was looking forward to um, IV solutions, saline, you know, multivitamins for kids, the nutrition situation is very, very worrying for UNICEF. Oh, blankets, tents, it's cold, Peter. So, yes, yes, aid, aid, aid was getting there, not nearly enough. You know, I, I think everyone had been hoping to see this pause in the fighting continue. But last night and through the morning, you could sense it slipping away. After meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said, and I'll quote here, underscored the imperative for the United States that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement on the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. How does that comment align with what you're seeing now? Look, I mean, you Politics is, is not our game. UNICEF can be anywhere and everywhere and on the front lines by not diving into politics and impartiality. Certainly, if I look at the situation on the ground, 1.8 million people have been displaced in one of the most densely populated places on the planet. The idea that they will be pushed into an area that's around 14 square kilometres would make it the most densely populated space Possibly ever, I don't know, but it, it, you know, it, it, right. insane to do the maths on that. So people just can't move anymore. They've moved, they've been bombed in a home and they've moved to a shelter. They've been bombed there. They've come south. They've told or tried to move somewhere else. When I look at a map, when I see the people, when I see the spaces, uh, I, I don't. It doesn't add up. The IDF has continued to claim that they're hitting very specific targets in Gaza, uh, including I think it's two hundred today. Uh, and they've described those as areas that are booby-trapped with explosives, these tunnel networks, operational command centers. Are you seeing any of that or any of those kinds of sites around you? I've seen the devastation. I have no idea what's under them. I, have no, I see buildings smashed and roads blown up and people being pulled from rubble and ambulances and people running with stretchers and bloodied, bloodied people entering hospitals. So I see the devastation. I, I don't know the context. I see, you know, I see a thousand children. I think it's around a thousand who have got amputations. I meet them all the time in the hospital. A little girl with no right arm, no right leg. A little boy with no right foot, three years old, loves football. Time and time and time again, I, sorry, just need to get a little bit lower. Um, I, yeah, so I see. Are you, you okay know, there? I, I Do you need see, to get to safety? Oh, unfortunately, it's not a cliche when people in Gaza say, just sit under a table. Where they say there is nowhere safe. There is nowhere safe. We understand that the, the hospitals for children, the school shelters aren't safe. People's homes aren't safe. Where I'm sitting now isn't safe. There are no bunkers. You know, the deaths of five, 6,000 children will attest to the idea that they're safe in Gaza. I'm assuming that was an airstrike we heard behind you there. Yeah, I think so, yes. You were talking about all these children that you see. I, I'm assuming you're, you're huddled somewhere with people now what what do you tell them as as a westerner as somebody from unicef uh, about what this situation is and and where things will go from here um but people are, are very understanding and kind i can be in gaza city in a convoy and getting it up just to talk to people and everyone's got nothing you can see the desperation in their gaunt faces and someone offers me a, you know a cup of coffee they've done from a, a stove this is a this is clearly not an economically rich place, but it's it's rich in it's rich in you know community in society. So, so the common question I guess I get asked, Peter, is well, we we need water, food, and water, food, and medicines. And the question is, will you end the war? I must have been asked that more than a dozen times in varying degrees of English. Will you end the war? Are you here to end the war? What to say? No, your life is being decided elsewhere. We're here to stem the bleeding. Well, listen, thank you for doing this, and, and please do stay safe. Thanks so much, Peter.
That was James Elder, a UNICEF spokesperson in Gaza, speaking with us earlier today. Gil Dickman is also concerned about the resumed assault on the Gaza Strip. His aunt was killed in the Hamas attacks of October 7th, and two of his cousins were taken hostage. One of them was released on Wednesday. We are very, very worried. We saw that that was possible to get back the hostages who were there. And now we know that there are hostages that are still alive in Gaza, including women that we know are alive. And we see that uh, the continuation of war really puts their lives at risk. There were negotiations going right up to the last minute, weren't they, to try to extend the truce. You, you had hope, presumably, that, that there would be more time. Yeah, we were very hopeful. Uh, you know, we saw my cousin's wife, Yarden, came back on Wednesday, and that was such such a happy moment for us. And we were very hopeful. And I know that there was a negotiation about women specifically and children, and that there are still women and children. And Hamas was claiming that it cannot find women and children or that there are no women and children alive. That's a complete lie. That's a part of a psychological terror that they are inflicting on us. And uh, right now, we are very worried that the continuation of wars might put the lives of our loved ones at risk. Do you view this as a window of opportunity closing? I'm trying not to look at it like this because I don't think it is closed yet. I think that there is still time, and, and, and time is of the essence here, there is still time to save lives. And I know that the negotiations are actually going while fire is shot. And we try to be as hopeful as we can and to try to pressure all the actors in this to reach an agreement that could end this unbelievable cycle of violence. Because we know that this is possible. We know if, if you had told me two weeks ago that there is going to be a negotiation and there is going to be a deal between Israel and Hamas, I would have told you no way. But now I know that this is possible. And I know that there's trust to be built between the two sides. Now it's time to go one step further into an agreement and no one step backwards into war that might risk the hostages that are still there and still alive. And of course, 2 million Palestinians and 10 million Israelis on both sides of the border. Gil Dickman's cousin is one of the Israeli hostages being held by Hamas. He was speaking to the BBC's Paul Henley. Yesterday, the federal government announced a $10 billion deal to buy a new fleet of military surveillance planes, up to 16 Boeing P-8As purchased from the U.S. to replace the aging CP-140 Aurora fleet. According to the governments, the Poseidons are the only aircraft currently available that can meet the military's operational needs. But the single-source deal is raising eyebrows. Bill Blair is Canada's Minister of Defense. We reached him in Toronto. Minister Blair, what specific threats will these new Poseidons address? One of the things that the Poseidons are responsible for is is submarine hunting and de- detecting the presence of, of antagonistic enemy submarines. Uh, what we're seeing right now is is that some of our adversaries are becoming far more aggressive um, in the North Atlantic, in the Indo-Pacific, and most specifically in the Arctic Ocean. And And these planes are going to provide us with additional capabilities to be able to detect and track them because they, they in their presence in our waterways and, and off our coast can represent a, a threat. And, and really, our ability to track them is, creates a deterrence. It, it kind of holds them in check. And it, and it helps maintain um, not only our security, but our sovereignty over the Arctic. So it's obviously a crucial need. Uh, but with that, this is one of the largest military procurements in years. Uh, and it was single sourced. Why did you go against the advice of the Standing Committee on National Defense and opt against opening up the competition here? Well, first of all, I, I, I was listening very carefully to the Royal Canadian Air Force, who, who clearly identified what their requirements were for a multi-mission aircraft. And they, they also made it clear that the, the, the aircraft that they've been using for 40 years, the Aurora uh, 140, was, was aging out. 
and and there was and we, we they've been challenged, for example, in the Indo Pacific and, and 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 by the Chinese Air Force and and in very aggressive flying around them, and their ability to defend themselves was limited. Their ability to do the mission was not as effective as it needed to be. There was only one plane that met all of our requirements, and you know there were others that I think didn't present a plane because there wasn't one, but presented the option of a development, what we call a development option. And development options bring with them a great deal of uncertainty and risk with respect to to being able to meet those capabilities, to controlling your costs, or even delivering within a reasonable time. And and so based on two 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 factors. One, the national interest, which which was that we needed this capability quickly. And secondly, that there was only one option available that caused us to pick the only option that was available to meet the, that national security requirement. One of those development options, of course, was with Bombardier that said they, they wanted to pitch a militarized version of an existing plane. Uh, the premiers of Ontario and Quebec called on Ottawa to launch an open competition. Um, if you wanted to ensure the best outcome, why not at least explore that option that would have included a Canadian company manufacturing these planes? Because of development option would have required a, 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 a different approach to procurement. And then, and then it would have begun a, a very long process of design and development and production. Um, we estimate that that likely would have taken between 10 and 15 years. And, and so, quite frankly, what was compelling for me as the Minister of National Defense, when, when our Air Force came and said, we need this capability, we don't have this capability now, and we need it to do the job we've been tasked to do. And, and when we went to the marketplace, there was only one plane that met that capability. And by the way, the, 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 the plane we're acquiring is used by all of our fire advice partners. So the United Kingdom, the, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, it's used by 14 of our NATO countries. I've already heard today from the Norwegian Air Force, who, who was looking forward to working with us. And, and so, quite frankly, from an operational standpoint, from the issue of national security, the argument was very compelling. And there was only one plane that met those requirements. Did Bombardier make a presentation? Like, is that where you came up with this timeline that it'll take that many years to, to actually lead to procurement? No, to be to be quite clear, we there, there was, as I said, there was only one plane that actually exists that met the requirements. There were fourteen other companies that indicated an interest in pursuing a development option if there was a broader procurement. And don't get me wrong, Bombardier is an outstanding company. Um, and, and they make some outstanding planes. Unfortunately, they do not currently make one that met the requirements of the, of the Royal Canadian Air Force. You knew, though, that there would be an uproar over single source in this. Your, your government was <clears throat> extremely critical when the federal conservative single source, the F-35 fighter jet contract, Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015 on a platform that promised open and transparent competition for those jets. Um, how do you balance that, like knowing that that was the politics of it and yet choosing to, to not even take the meeting with Bombardier to be like, OK, lay it out for us. Give us the case. Oh, no, first, of, first of all, Peter, just to be clear. Of course, I, I took a meeting from Bombardier. I met, I met with their CEO. I met, I met with their people. But let me differentiate this for you, because, you know, you, you referenced the, the F-35. Right. When, when a previous government wanted to sole source the F-35, there were five fighter planes under consideration at the time that existed, that, that were actually in use. And so sole sourcing then was, was a different set of circumstances. And, and, and frankly, in, in this case, it was, on the one hand, the national interest, and the fact that there was not five, but only one. And so sole sourcing to that only, the only existing choice is, was the choice for us that made sense. These planes are going to start arriving in 2026. All of them are set to be delivered by 2027 <clears> if, if they, they keep to schedule. Uh, having the planes, of course, is one thing. Getting people to fly them is another thing entirely. The Air Force, as well as the military, facing a huge, well-known, well-documented recruitment issues. What can you as minister do to help the military address that? Yeah, I, I, I've been going to bases right across the country. I've been speaking to the Admiral of the Navy, the Commander of the Air Force, the Commander of the Army, and the Chief of Defense Staff. But most importantly, I think I've been talking to the men and women right across the country. They're facing the same challenges Canadians are facing. They're facing challenges of housing, access to child care, decent health care, getting a family doctor. You know, And, and we, we place an incredible challenges for the members of the armed services because we deploy them around the world. We send them out on ships, for, and they're away from their families for, for weeks and even months at a time. And so it is incumbent upon us, and this is my job, is to make sure that we provide all of the supports that are necessary and, and, and appropriate. 
for the members of the Canadian Armed Forces to make sure that we support them and their families while they're doing this important mission for us. We have to get the best people into the Canadian Armed Forces, and then we've got to work hard to make sure that we create a work environment for them which is inclusive, supportive, and safe so that they can do the job of serving their country. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Minister Blair, I appreciate you making the time. No problem, Peter. Thanks. Bill Blair is Canada's Minister of Defence. He's in Toronto. probably don't find snot sexy. But what if I told you it was glowing blue snot? Now I can tell you're a maybe at best, which means you are not a female ostracod. The the type of ostracod we're talking about here is actually called a sea firefly, which is exactly what it sounds like, a tiny underwater creature that glows in the dark. And scientists have now figured out how and why they use balls of bioluminescent mucus Nikolai Hensley is the lead author of the study published by the Royal Society. We reached him in Cambridge, England. Nikolai, can you describe what this sea firefly looks like? Sea fireflies are very, very tiny. They're about the size of a sesame seed or a few grains of sand. Um, And we like to affectionately think of them as shrimp inside of a clamshell. So if you take a really, really tiny shrimp, and then you put it inside of a clamshell, you basically have a sea firefly. So they have these large shells that come off their back and cover their face, and they end up walking around like little tanks, actually. They're very armored little guys. <laughs> can, like, can I see it with the naked eye? Yeah, uh, they are visible to the naked eye. They're just really, really tiny. They look more like sand than shrimp. Um, to see all the really cool details about their bodies, like their special organs or all their legs, which they probably have more than most people are comfortable with, you have to see them under a microscope. Okay, so walk me through this, the the glowing blue light. How do they create this? An ostracod, these ostracods that we study in the Caribbean, they're really special because the males want to attract females. And how they do that is they swim up in the water out of the sand um, hundreds at a time. And they will start to secrete this blue ball of mucus into the water. It's almost like they're sneezing or vomiting it up. And they can actually leave that ball in the water there and it will glow for a long time. And then they'll swim along and they'll do it again. And every species does this in their own pattern. So all of the species um, have their different way of swimming about and sneezing these patterns into the water. And females can use these trails of light to actually find the males and find a mate. And uh, like they're tiny, so I'm assuming they're tiny little balls of light, but what happens when you've got a whole bunch of these things all lighting up at the same time? So in this one species that we've looked at, most species don't do um, all of their displays at the same time. You won't have lots of males going at the exact same time. You'll have like little patches of maybe a few males trying to make their patterns over here, and some males over here will be doing it, and they all differ at the timing at which they want to do it. But this new species that we've um, documented for the first time, we have hundreds of thousands of males who actually synchronize their displays, which is they all swim into the water at the same time, and then they start creating their patterns. And as soon as one creates a pattern, other males will start to create his pattern until you get this huge wave of blue light kind of um, reaching out from the starting point. It must look pretty cool. It looks phenomenal. Um, I like to say it's the coolest a fireworks show that you've ever seen, but probably have never seen. And, and you, you, where are they found? So these are all in um, Panama, off the coast of Panama, on an island called Bocas del Toro, which is on the Panadian, uh, the P- Panamanian Costa Rican border. And and th- this all happens at night, right? Is there a specific time of night? Yeah, ostracods only. Um, perform at night. When you're trying to make a signal of light, you want to be the brightest thing out there, right? Just like fireflies that we see on land, these animals only like to display or mate uh, in darkness. And it, like I, I, I'm assuming they're fairly close to the surface? 
Yes, this is one of the greatest things about this system is that most bioluminescence occurs really deep in the ocean. I right. mean, like abyssal depths, you know, like the movie The Abyss, <laughs> really, really <laughs> exactly. deep, too far for us to see, except for James Cameron. <laughs> um, but uh, these animals actually all do their bioluminescence in really shallow waters. I'm, I'm in water usually when I'm observing this phenomenon that's no higher than my waist, and oh. I'm not even two meters tall. So um, they're very easy to actually go out and see in nature. The only thing you have to do is you have to go at night and you can't use any lights of your own because if you use any light, they don't like it. They won't do their display. Huh. So you're, you're in the water up to your waist surrounded by this light show? Yes. Wow. I stand there and I've done it for years. And you stand there and you count how many you're trying to measure or whatever scientific question that you have in mind. And you can watch over time throughout the night as these waves of light kind of crescendo across the grass bed that you stand in in the water. And they'll go in many directions and they'll happen fast or slow. And there's lots of questions that we have about why these things differ. But it's a very repeatable behavior to see. The only thing I can kind of compare this to in my life would be fireflies. And I, I've been in a field full of fireflies, and it's amazing. Is, is it even remotely comparable? So that is, I think, the best part of this system is that we call them sea fireflies because right. they're basically fireflies in the ocean. It's exactly comparable to what you would imagine happening in a meadow of fireflies. But maybe unlike some of the fireflies that many people in North America have seen, there are a few species, some in North America, but mostly in Southeast Asia, where all the fireflies will time their, their displays at the exact same time. And this is more akin to that. What we're seeing is all these males are synchronizing the timing, which creates these waves, as opposed to just like a frenetic you know, glow about a meadow, you see these like pulsed waves of timing occurring in the ocean. So we've spent all this time talking about the males and the light show they put on, but the purpose of all that is to attract the females. Do we have a sense of what the female firefly, sea firefly is looking for in that light? That is an excellent question, and it is a completely open question. It's actually one of the avenues of research we're most interested in moving forward in, all we know thus far is that these animals are attracted to light. The females will orient themselves towards light. But we don't know about what makes one display better looking than another or why some males might be preferred over others. We have no idea what the females are looking for yet. This is fascinating stuff. And uh, congratulations on the discovery. And thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Yeah, thank you for your time. Nikolai Hensley is an evolutionary biologist at Cornell University. He's the lead author on a study of sea fireflies and glowing mucus published by the Royal Society. He's in Cambridge, England. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Was it a goal of yours to become a justice? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> Goodness no, it certainly was not. And um, I wasn't sure what I ought to do because it's all right to be the first to do something, but I didn't want to be the last woman on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> the voice of a justice who was once, and I quote, the most powerful woman in America. That's how the New York Times described Sandra Day O'Connor in its obituary for the first woman to serve as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. She died today at the age of 93. 
There was a time when America's highest court was nicknamed O'Connor's Court because her swing vote decided hugely consequential cases, including cases that upheld abortion rights, affirmative action, and in the case of Bush v. Gore, decided the presidency. Before Gretchen Rubin became the author of the bestseller The Happiness Project, she served as Sandra Day O'Connor's Supreme Court clerk in 1995. We reached her in New York City. Gretchen, people know you as the writer of The Happiness Project, and I understand you got the chance to ask Justice O'Connor what she saw as the key to happiness. What did she tell you? She had an answer right away. She didn't hesitate, so I knew that she had thought about this before. And she said, the secret to a happy life is work worth doing. And at first I thought, isn't that too limited? Like, what does that even mean? And then I re- the more time and experience I've had, the more... I realize how thoughtful and profound that answer is. She didn't say paid work. She didn't say it was all about success. Work worth doing means whatever you're doing that is worth doing. And Hmm. a life with work worth doing is going to be a happy, good life. And and did you see, once she said that, could you sort of look back and and see her time as Supreme Court justice and, and see that philosophy play out and how she approached that work? I mean, absolutely. Uh, Justice O'Connor was someone who dedicated her life to good government. She served in all different sorts of roles um, before she got to the Supreme Court. She understood how important it was that government work well, that people listen to each other, that people were able to have, uh, you know, wise compromise. Um, And she worked tirelessly for it. I mean, her clerks worked on the weekends, and she, you know, she'd often work on the weekends too, and bring us in lunch um, to make it all, you know, easier and more fun. So she really, she really dedicated herself to just the highest standards of integrity and thoughtfulness, and it was a magnificent life. When I think about people working as as clerks to Supreme Court justices, it it seems grueling and difficult. What what was what kind of a boss was she? Well, it was it was it was demanding, and she was a demanding boss. But she was also really fun. Um, we would have birthday parties when anybody had a birthday in her chambers. She would take all her clerks on an outing. We went on a fishing trip, and I caught the biggest fish, so that was a highlight. <laughs> um, she made for Halloween. She insisted that we all uh, do a pumpkin display. So we were, you know, very stressed out about like, okay, what's our pumpkin display uh, theme going to be? Um, as for her female clerks like me, we were um, we did aerobics with her, and that was understood to be something that was not optional. Um, but she made really? it fun. We all had tea. Yeah, we had we did aerobics <laughs> together in the morning in the in the courthouse, and then in the top of the courthouse there was a basketball court, the highest court in the land. And then there was also a room where we did aerobics, and we had T-shirts made with a motto every year. And so the motto of my year, we had a, a big the T-shirt had a big picture of the Supreme Court building, and then the motto, justice never rests. Nice. So she was able to have this kind of collegial, warm, playful quality, along with her very serious, very professional, very kind of get-down-to-it side. So I, she was a great boss. I mean, tales of fishing, tales of, of aerobics, I, I, I don't know that you'll have a better answer than, than those, but is there a moment that stands out in your time with her? Well, there was a moment where I was, I was she was... Um, talking to me about a memo that I had written for her about, about a case that she had coming up. And she told me that my reasoning was perfunctory. Um, so uh, that stood out to me. Um, I've, I've never forgotten that. I took that note. Um, and then there was a moment. Um, so as I said, you know, birthdays were a very big deal in her chambers. And so the year before I got there, her clerks had given her one of these big birthday books, you know, these books where it's your, your astrological sign and your birthstone and important dates in history on your birthday. And you look up your birthday and you kind of get a whole little rundown of, of what's happened. And so, when it, so this was this new book that we had in her chambers. And on her birthday, she said, oh, well, get the birthday book and tell me what famous person was born on my birthday. And I opened up the book and I said, well, look, it's you, Justice. And there was a big picture, the first female associate justice of the Supreme Court. And she got a very strange look on her face because I think to realize that you're a historical figure, that you're an iconic figure, like, sure, she knew it, but it's kind of funny to see it in that context. It was, a, it was an odd moment for all of us. 
She was known as, as a centrist. She often had notorious disagreements with the staunchly conservative Justice Scalia. But when she retired, he actually wrote her a note that said, and I'll quote here, I have, despite my sometimes sharp dissents, always regarded you as a good friend, indeed, as the forger of the social bond that has kept the court together, unquote. What do you make of that? Absolutely. I mean, Justice O'Connor, she had this, as I said, she had a playful side and a serious side. And I think that the range of her personality allowed her to have deep, meaningful relationships with people with whom she often disagreed, that often disagreed with her, but she was able to to listen to them, to maintain good relationships with them. And that was, was, you know, a really important element of the functioning of the court was that people could work together and, and uh, you know, because, look, if a case gets to the Supreme Court, it's really, really difficult because cases that aren't difficult get, de- get decided right. earlier. Right. So everything they deal with is very, very difficult, often very, very controversial, very, you know, very charged sometimes. And yet she was able to maintain those strong relationships with people who, you know, on both sides, people who disagreed with her, and to really have this idea of how to get, you know, wise compromise when it was necessary and, you know, how to think about how do we move forward and do what's best for the country. Of all the lessons Justice O'Connor taught you, what what stuck with you the most? I think it's work worth doing. I think about that often because... If you're doing work worth doing, you can put up with a lot of frustration uh, and a lot of anxiety. And if you can hold on to that, um, you know that you're, ta- you're spending your time well. And there's, that's, a, that's a key to a happy life. I got that down on a sticky note here. I'm going to use that. That's yes. a good one. Yes. It's very, it's very typical of her style. It's brief, confident, and to the point. That's very, that's very, uh, very much her style. Well, that's a good way to be remembered. Gretchen, thank you for this. It's great to get your story. Thank you. Gretchen Rubin is the author of The Happiness Project and once served as Sandra Day O'Connor's Supreme Court clerk. We reached her in New York City. Sandra Day O'Connor died today at the age of Raphael, just how exciting is it to discover a perfect solar system? Yeah, it has been great. It has been a, a long story, uh, kind of a detective one, but, but it's been very exciting, especially at the very end when we got confirmation of all the, of all the orbits in the planet with new observations. So it's been a long endeavor, but a, a worthwhile one. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I mean, I know this can get complicated, but in terms that I might understand, can you explain to us what makes a solar system perfect? Yeah, it's, it's a, it, I would say it's three factors. So first, the number of planets is remarkable. Six planets, this is not very normal. It's not that they do not exist, but they are difficult to detect. So that for one side, I would say also the star is very bright, meaning that it's nearby, it's close to the solar system, so it makes it bright for us. So the quality of the data that we are going to obtain for this system is going to be outstanding. And the, the last one I would say is the, the actual orbital configuration, right? This perfection or this synchronization that, that we are talking about the orbits. This is truly, truly remarkable and very, very uncommon in nature. One of your colleagues, I believe, described it as as beautiful and unique. Do, do you agree with that? What, can you just oh, like certainly. sort of describe it for us? Yeah, it's a it's a very peculiar configuration. I mean, uh, these sort of resonant orbits that we call them, this synchronization between pair of planets, is already very rare. Uh, we only know one percent of all exoplanets we have discovered so far, which is more than five thousand. They show this 
resonant pair, meaning that, for example, in this system, the innermost planet gives three orbits around the star while the next one gives two, right? They are perfectly synchronized. Every every six orbits, they, they pass through the same part of the of, of space. But here we don't have a pair of planets. We have six planets that they are in this configuration. And we only know, I, I think it's just a handful of systems that show this. Um, and this is really surprising, but it, it, it is really powerful because we can use our math to predict how the planets look like now and how did they look billions of years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it is indeed so perfect that you actually made a musical piece out of it. And before I get to explain what that is, I want to just let our listeners give it a listen. Okay, that was beautiful, but... How and why did you make that? Yeah, this synchronization, we just took advantage of it for, for this piece of music. Uh, every time we listen to a beat, meaning that the star and the planet are aligned with respect to us uh, on Earth, meaning that we are seeing the planet passing in front of the star, which makes the light of the star coming, from, uh, coming to us dimming slightly. So this is every time that we listen a bit is because one of the planets is passing in front of the star. And as you can see, because the orbits are synchronized, it makes a rhythm that is very easy to follow. Uh, we associate one note to each planet, and that's why we have this composition. And, and you've been able, as you say, not just see them as they are now, but as they were billions of years ago. Our solar system was quite famously a, a violent beginning. What do we know about it's this one's beginning? It's completely the opposite. It has been the most boring system for a billion years. Their orbits have remained the same, exactly as they form. Nothing dynamically disruptive <laughs> has ever happened in a billion years. And, and Raphael, this is remarkably close, right? Yeah, in terms of uh, astronomical distances, it is. It's 100 light years away, which is literally the solar neighborhood. It is very near to us. And, and which makes me immediately wonder, how is it that we're only really getting a glimpse at this now? Because we have been taking advantage of a new space telescope called TESS from NASA that is, uh, is dealing with that exactly. We had previous uh, exoplanet searches, uh, Kepler, the most famous one, but Kepler focused at a part of the sky and stared at it for many years. Most of the planets that it discovered was a very, around very faint star. That's why we needed something different. We needed a telescope that instead of staring at the same field for many years, we wanted to look at the whole sky. Uh, the trade-off is we cannot detect planets around that faint stars or that far away, but we can do it for the brightest ones. And this is the case. The first day that we got is in 2020. It just took us three years to piece the puzzle together. Wow. And at the end of the day, do you kind of pour yourself a glass of wine, put on your solar system music? It, it, it must be relaxing. Oh, certainly it is. Uh, I'm a musician myself, or at least I was when I was a kid, and and this has been this has been really fun. I mean, really fun to prepare also the materials for the press and, and stuff like that. Like people have shown a lot of interest. It is nice. So now we can really get into the grid of studying this and trying to learn from it. Do you have one answerable question that you're you're next trying to learn about this solar system? Uh, yeah, I think this is just the first course. We just. Put this, it's like a dressing rehearsal, like a dress rehearsal or something like that for this system. We just present it on society. Now everybody knows about it and it can trigger new studies. The one that we are more interested about is studying the atmospheres of these planets. Because of the studies so bright, this is going to allow us to get probably the best data we have ever taken for this planet class, sub-Neptunes. These are planets that do not exist in the solar system, but they are the most common in the galaxy. And for the first time, we are going to get data of really high quality of their atmosphere thanks to the launch of James Webb. And does the atmosphere through that, can we learn a little bit about, you know, life and, and what might be on these planets or whether maybe we could go live there? Oh, yes, because these planets, uh, contrary to Earth, they must have very large atmospheres. We can measure water, methane, carbon dioxide, all those things we'll measure with high precision. And studying the atmosphere is going to tell us something about the interior of the planet, especially if there is a liquid water ocean below it. Right. Well, listen, this is fascinating. We've been we've been watching this and, and really glad to get uh, to get your insight into what it all means. So thank you for this. Thank you very much. Have a great day. 
Dr. Rafael Luque is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Chicago, which is where we reached him. Never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Romeo and Juliet is the classic forbidden love story, two giant marine mammals torn apart by outside forces. To be clear, I'm not talking about the humans in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I'm talking about Romeo and Juliet, the massive manatees at the Miami Seaquarium, who've been separated in different tanks while in captivity. But unlike that tragedy, this story has a happy ending. Romeo and Juliet, the manatees, will be released from the aquarium as early as next week, a long-awaited victory that's being celebrated by animal rights activists everywhere, including Phil Demers, the founder of the animal rights whistleblower group Urgent Seas, who campaigned for Romeo and Juliet's release. We reached him in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Philip, these two manatees, Romeo and Juliet, have been separated for a long time. What are you imagining their reunion might be like? Uh, there are a few times in life when I would want to be a captive animal, but this is just one of those occasions where I imagine the relief and the overwhelming uh, gratitude to be removed from the facility and the captivity that, they've, that they're currently existing to be put back together in a much better and more accommodating place would be near blissful. Now, you've seen the conditions that they're about to leave. Can you just describe what you saw? Well, if you can imagine an off-site facility, so something where the um, public is not actually available to go to, uh, it's derelict. It was built, I mean, the Miami Seaquarium was built essentially in the late 50s and into the 60s, and with not a lot of improvements to show over that course of that time. So you can imagine water filtration uh, systems start to fall, um, life support systems start to fail, uh, the pool uh, infrastructures themselves, the cement starts to crumble off, the paint, uh, toxic as it is, starts to peel off. Uh, this is exactly what was happening at the Miami Seaquarium. It looks like it's out of a uh, dated past. It is not accommodating to, frankly, any animals that I've uh, that I've witnessed there. I, I mean, it's been sixty years. After all this time, did, what what finally broke it? What finally led to their release? I think the, pub, the public pressure campaign that's been mounting against the Miami Seaquarium over the past year or so is just such that the authorities can no longer ignore it ignore it. They had a, a isolated orca pass away mere months ago that brought, you know, quite a bit of attention onto them. Our, our particular video that we released of Romeo was such that people could feel his desperation. They could feel like Romeo. And I think that's what it takes sometimes to, to, to just feel like the animal. And, and I'm very proud that, that that's that sentiment that we were able to have people sort of, uh, sort of join in. That video is a remarkable thing, and it, it really did, it, it just sort of laid everything bare. Uh, how did the Miami Seaquarium ever justify that? Well, frankly, it was a secret for a long time. Uh, those facilities were off-limit. There's no way of, of, of seeing them uh, unless you were to fly a helicopter, or in this case, a drone. But up until recently, drones were not something that was necessarily affordable or something that the Miami Seaquarium had to worry about. So... Largely, much of these uh, these facilities, or the off-site facilities, were allowed to operate because they were doing so in secrecy. Now, they're leaving the awful conditions at the Miami Seaquarium. Where are they headed to? So there is a um, manatee rescue program with which there are a series of facilities that are a part of. It's a qualification, a designation. And so somewhere within that program, uh, the walruses will go, or rather the uh, manatees will go to uh, to one of these facilities. I, I can't say that I know with absolution which one, um, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we'll find out, it sounds like, as early as uh, as next week. The uh, I have to admit, my initial response is, was a bit juvenile, I get, but the question was, why not just send them back into the wild and let them be free? So I think that what becomes when you take an animal into human care is you have a responsibility to provide that animal for the remainder of its life with as best a quality of care as possible. And given the fact that Romeo and Juliet have been in captivity for 66 years at this point, 
um, is such that it would be irresponsible to merely just let them go. Now, if there were a program where incremental steps can be taken and, and such a, a release were to be done very responsibly, I would absolutely be advocating for and endorsing that. But in this particular circumstance, and frankly, in many of the circumstances of animals that have previously been in human care, um, they're going to need to remain in human care, at least to a certain extent. And uh, and I think it's the most responsible thing to do. You, you don't just want to uh, leave an animal that doesn't necessarily have the skills or hasn't ad- adapted to this environment uh, and suddenly put them in there and, and expect them to just, uh, to just thrive. Now, we've had you on this show before. Uh, it was right after... Marineland in Ontario had dropped its lawsuit against you. That had to do with your efforts around the welfare of a, a walrus called Smooshy. Uh, and you told us how you started like any employee, hoping to, you know, impress managers or whatever. But by the end, it was the animals you wanted to speak for. Here we are talking to you again. Why are you still doing this kind of work, this kind of ag- advocacy? I'm doing this because too many people have tried to stop me. And I found that I recognized that there was a void in this type of I'm not sure exactly how to describe it outside of perhaps like a firebrand-like uh, activism with my uh, with my uh, non-for-profit urgencies. But this this is chapter two for me. Uh, this is you know I just became good at understanding the playbook of these facilities and how they operate, understanding how they like to control the narrative, and understanding uh, to to a great extent just the the extent of the suffering that these animals uh, endure. And I feel like I, was, I have a responsibility to do so. And to be honest, there's something addictive about squeezing animals out of awful facilities and rehoming them. So, yeah, this is not going to be the uh, the last you'll hear of our work. Uh, back to the work and those manatees. The life expectancy I was reading about manatees is like 50 to 60 years old. And we're talking about Romeo and Juliet that are like 67 and I think 61 years old. They're very near the end of their life. What what do you wish for them? If, if this is the final place they go and, and end their lives there, what, what do you hope for them? As a side note, as we speak, I have chills, absolute chills throughout the entirety of my body because all I hope for Romeo and Juliet is a sense of humanity and for a moment for them to have a semblance of a dignified life one last time, whereas otherwise there was exactly zero hope Today we know it's going to happen. Romeo and Juliet don't know yet, but they will know next week, and it just gives me absolute chills. Well, me too. Listen, thank you for this. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you. Anytime. Phil Demers is the founder of Urgent Seas, the animal rights group that campaigned for the release of the manatees Romeo and Juliet from the Miami Seaquarium. He's in Niagara Falls, Ontario. We also contacted the Miami Seaquarium for comment, but we didn't hear back by the time we went to air. It begins as a joyous holiday tradition, but unlike the majority of joyous holiday traditions, it often ends in a strange kind of mourning and the smell of smoke. Today, like they do every year, residents of Yevla, Sweden, erected their giant straw Christmas goat. And as they celebrated, they also prepared themselves for the devastating likelihood that the goat would wind up in flames. It turns out that a giant straw goat in the middle of town is quite an attraction for arsonists. Over the past 57 years, the goat has been set on fire 38 times. A few years back, the destructive streak was broken for an impressive five straight holiday seasons. But in 2021, the goat once again met a fiery end. At the time, we spoke with Rebecca Steiner, who was the spokesperson for the Yevla goat at the time. From our archives, here's an encore of that conversation. Rebecca, how did you react when you heard that the goat was on fire? very sad. Uh, My heart really feels for the goat builders that have put a lot of time and effort in building him and of course I feel really sad as well for his fans and for myself as well. Did you see the flames or the aftermath? Uh, I saw the flames during the webcam uh, because I was the one of the first ones that the guards call so uh, I went directly out on the webcam and and saw the flames uh, there. I've seen one photograph, which is pretty dramatic, the fire. Can you describe what you saw? 
Yeah, it was very dramatic uh, footage that I saw as well. And I really felt like, <laughs> how can any possible person do this kind of things with this biggest Christmas symbol in the world, or one of them at least, uh, a week before Christmas? And I feel really sad for his fans. And his, uh, this Christmas uh, symbol that's supposed to bring joy and happiness and Christmas feeling, then someone sabotages his... Oh, it's very sad. Now, we have covered the story every year that uh, since <laughs> I can remember being on the show, but um, and but you've had a good s uh, stretch of not having it burned, right? Since about five years now that it hasn't burned. Yeah, yeah. It's just since the fifth anniversary, 2016, uh, that was the last one he was uh, attacked. And then he has been untouched since uh, that year. Just for people who haven't seen it, uh, can you just describe what the goat looks like? Ah, majestic is the first word I would use. Uh, he's 30 meters tall. He weighs uh, around three ton uh, and has this aura that's like... I'm not quite sure how to describe it. He has a very good <laughs> confidence and self-esteem, but still humble. Uh, so, um, yeah, you should really, you feel like this Christmas spirit he brings. Uh, uh, He's made of straw. Yeah, true. Uh, the, the skeleton is made of wood and then the straw uh, over. It's massive. As you say, it's really quite grand. And how long does it take to actually put it together? Uh, very long, actually, or it takes around 1,000 work hours with uh, a team of 30 men. Wow. And just minutes to set it ablaze. Yeah, uh, not even uh, yeah, minutes, or it almost feels like seconds because it was so fast over. What is it about, I mean, why do people do this? It's not just that they has been set on fire many times, including the very first year of its existence back in the 60s, but there has been an attempted kidnapping with a helicopter, it's been rammed by a car, but mostly it's been attacked with by arson. What, 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 why is that? Why is that some kind of a perverse tradition? I'm not quite sure what people actually think uh, when they do these attacks. Uh, uh, I'm not. I, I can't really answer the question because I can't really feel it because it's the most stupid and crazy thing you can do with this kind of symbol that represents Christmas, which should be uh, like a symbol who is, yeah, brings joy. But someone, a man, has been arrested, right? Yeah, that's correct. And does he has he said anything as to why he did it? No, he hasn't uh, given any lines that I know about. Uh, I know, I, I read the newspaper when they said that he denied it, but yeah, I'm not quite sure. They, they, as I understand from reading the papers, they have quite good evidence. Uh, now, it's been, there was a lot of security in recent years. There was some uh, fireproofing material put on it to prevent it from catching fire. All these things, these measures put in place to protect the goat. So, were those things not in place? They were in place, uh, all of them. And our, we did some extra measurements uh, from the 50th uh, anniversary. So we put up these double fences, which has been very successful uh, until now. So um, it's very unfortunate that this person made it through anyway. So you are the, the goat's spokesperson. So how do you explain it to all the kids who want to come and see that goat? Yeah, I can really feel for them, uh, but we, we will be back next year, that can guarantee. You know that torching that goat has become a tradition in a weird way, so do you think that no matter how many times you come back with a goat, there will be somebody who wants to destroy it? Uh, I think so. There will always be these persons who think that is some kind of thing to destroy him, which I have no uh, understanding for at all. Um, but so, there, are, there are those who like to see the goat burn. That's also part of a tradition. So what would you say to those people if you could talk to them? Uh, what, what's, why do they have this feeling of seeing this kind of big Christmas symbol being destroyed? I would really like to hear that answer because it's impossible for me to understand. I don't think we're going to get an answer, are we, Rebecca? 
<laughs> Probably not. All right. Thanks for speaking with us. Sure. Have a happy Christmas. Yeah, you too. Bye. From our archives, that was Rebecca Steiner, the spokesperson for Sweden's Yevla Goat, speaking with former As It Happens host Carol Off. And done. I was just having a little nap during that sting. It's so refreshing. And I have chin strap penguins to thank. This week, researchers who tracked the sleep habits of nesting chin strap penguins revealed that rather than sleeping in long stretches, the penguins take lots of tiny naps each day. And by lots, I mean thousands, each just a few seconds long, a practice which I have immediately adopted. I may not be able to microdose in this job, but microdosing, I'm in. Good night. Good morning. And the thing is, now that I've stopped bothering to try to get a whole night of sleep and dedicated myself to the penguin way, I totally feel so much better. I mean, okay, the scientists involved in the study uh, did note that this kind of fragmented sleep is highly unusual and probably just evolved as a way for nesting penguins to protect their young from birds of prey. But I mean... How different could my brain possibly be from a penguin's anyway? It's not like I'm so desperate to solve my insomnia that I'll (laughs) try anything. I do see that there could be some downsides. You might not want to take one of your thousands of tiny naps when you're at the wheel, of course, or in front of a... Chris, Chris. Microphone. But if it helps me feel more rested and alert, well then, I, I... Get away from my nest. Chris, it's okay. I won't touch your nest. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Alvin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.